Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. Thank you for subscribing, downloading, rating. We really do appreciate it. And if you'd like to comment on anything on the show, you can email us science at newstalk.com. Coming up, we're going to be talking about um, brain implants because the technology that we have today is amazing, but it's quite short-lived. So if you implant something into uh, someone's brain to allow them, for example, to reduce tremor in Parkinson's or uh, for them to control a robotic arm if they are fully paralyzed, that doesn't last very long. And we have to take it out after a number of years because of scarring and and other issues. And so we need to find a way of, of getting more permanent implants. And the answer may be in soft electronics. We'll hear all about that Uh, in a few minutes time but before that it's time to look back at some of the news stories from the past week and joining me uh, in studio is Dr Fergus McCall of Communications and Engagement Manager at iCRAG and Catherine McGuinness Zoologist and Science Communicator. Our first story Catherine has to do with travelling to Mars or sort of pretending to anyway. This is it. And it's preparing, hopefully, to get to Mars as well. So what NASA have done is in the Johnson Space Centre in Houston, Texas, they've literally built a 1,200 square foot sandbox and put it in a dome and uh, put a 3D printed housing unit in there as well. And the plan is that four crew members are going to live there for a year in Mars-like conditions. They're going to be um, observed, they're going to give regular blood samples, psychological surveys, and the idea is, is to see what a year on Mars, what would it do to the mind and the body of an individual and to help prepare us for this future project, hopefully. I mean, how... Mars-like is this environment? Are they sealed off from all news, all parent, all, all family, um, all trappings of modern life? Absolutely. So when they go in, they're in there for the year. That's it. They have to go through um, kind of fake airlocks and they, so do all the procedures as if they're on Mars. They have comms, all right, but the comms have a 22-minute delay, which is similar to what astronauts experience at the moment. So they would have communication with the outside world, but they'd have that delay. And then as well, they're going to have, for instance, limited food. So they're going to have these greenhouses where they're going to produce salad plants, tomatoes, and they're going to have to regulate their food and live on portions that they can self-sustain. Interestingly enough, even uh, their trash, their rubbish, the scientists are going to look at what the rubbish they produce in an effort to kind of plan for what can be reused in space. So when the project goes forward, hopefully to Mars, that any sort of rubbish produced can be of use in some other way. So it's completely a self-sustaining unit. What about the outside? I mean, when you go for a walk, do you have to put on a suit? I mean, when you walk around, is it similar Mars dust? Have they bothered to paint a horizon? Or will you just see, I mean, like, is it it completely like they would imagine Mars might look like? Yeah, absolutely. So like, as I mentioned at the beginning, it's a sandbox. So when you go out, of your unit, you're in your your gear. You're in your pseudo helmets, pseudo suits. You go out. You're walking in a sandbox on on the kind of like a same kind of surface as you'd have in Mars. There's red landscapes all around you. Why? And, and yeah, so the whole thing is to give as much of a simulation of life on Mars as you can. What sort of person would subject themselves to this? <laughs> Ridiculous mission. <laughs> I mean, yeah, absolutely. Because first of all, they're looking for people with science skills and, and the crew members that have been recruited do come from STEM backgrounds. We don't know who they are yet. They, we haven't been told who they are. But you're not just looking for someone who is 
of a science uh, skill set. I mean, they have to be physically very, very fit, mentally very, very, very well prepared for this as well. So they use a lot of the same selection process as they would for astronauts. Do they get to be called astronauts? I mean, like this, it, this sounds like <laughs> the biggest sacrifice to fake yeah. be on a planet. Um, it's an extraordinary sacrifice mm, by people, mm, mm. but... And an achievement to get through it. Uh, you know, why do it again? Like, what? So one of the main things they're hoping to get from people from this is, I mean, it's it's mostly psychological, but also because like we know what sort of waste a human will produce, don't we? Yeah. I mean, yeah. they can't recreate, you know, the different gravity it's, or the different air. It's really more looking at the psychological and the physiological uh, effects this is going to have on a human. Right. So to be to be in because they they reckon the the journey will take nine months. Then you're going to be on Mars for a year, so you, you, they they have to see how long. Uh, you're Presumably, they don't have to pretend to be in a rocket ship. For no, <laughs> they're not. They're not. They're not they're, there's, there's like an add-on you can do. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> the, the, the subscriber plan. Um, wow, really interesting. We might catch up with that uh, that experiment, mm. trying to figure out what, what what it is they're hoping that's new. Because I know there are a couple of. Um, very similar projects that have already happened where people have gone through this already. So I wonder what they're trying to find out that's new. Fergus, our second story has to do with, I suppose, the inevitable that the robots that we all joked about watching on on YouTube um, that became more and more sophisticated over time are now being deployed in the real world. So-called snitch bots. So-called snitch bots and digi dogs. So essentially, Robocop has arrived to the New York Police Department. So... This week, they've they've made an announcement of new, quite advanced robots that are being deployed as part of the policing there. So the first one is what's called the K5 Snitchbot. So I'll try and paint the picture for you for how it looks. So it's egg-shaped, it's five foot high, it weighs 200 kilograms, it is covered in microphones and cameras, it is capable of both sonar and LiDAR, it is capable of reading your license plates and it costs $12,000 per month to rent. So the New York Police Department, they don't even own this, right? right. Which, which, which I think raises interesting questions around, okay, so they're renting equipment that they're using in policing, which means that because this is effectively a data collecting device, where is that data going? Is mm. it being held with the police or is it being held with the private company? Now, um, having said that, if if you were to be uh, seen by the snitch bot, you can outrun it because it moves at the quite impressive speed of a total of three miles per hour. So if you walk fast... <laughs> wait, wait. <laughs> if you walk fast, you are absolutely fine. The DigiDog, on the other hand, the DigiDog is four-legged, it is two foot high, it is four foot long and it weighs 20 kilos. These cost $400,000 to buy. And so the police department have bought two of them. And despite being called the DigiDog, it can only move at four miles per hour. So you can still outrun this. Now, crucially, this one is going to be used in hostage situations, primarily, they think. So I was thinking earlier, I was like, is this is this something It, it looks like something from Black Mirror. If you've seen the Black Mirror um, episode where these robot dogs... Um, have taken over the world essentially, um, or or if you've seen those videos from I think is uh, is it um, Boston Dynamics? Boston Dynamics, yeah. Exactly, yeah. Um, the it's the dog version of the robot that's actually going to be involved in hostage situations. I mean, it's so sci-fi when you think about it, but there you are. Eventually, this is going to happen. Exactly, and so when it first came out a couple of years ago, there was a huge public backlash to it because. 
they thought it was going to be weaponized. Yeah. So this particular DigiDog is not going to be weaponized. But it does, It. I mean, like we had already started doing this. Like if you think about things like bomb diffusal. Yeah. It's a robot that I sent in uh, uh, to to defuse the bomb. So this is this had already started. But I think it it, it does, I mean, like it, it, it was inevitable that this was going to happen. Uh, and I think the crucial thing here now is that these these robots that they remain non-weaponized mm. because when you move from policing by consent like we have here to policing by force like happens elsewhere and when you militarize the police that really changes the dynamic between the populace yeah. and the police force so while tech can often be used uh, to enhance their greater good it just needs to be done sensibly yeah because i mean in one way, you would imagine the police would say, give us loads of these with guns because then we would never have to put our lives in, in danger and these robots would surely be a much better shot. But the, once you start going down that alleyway, as we've seen in many science fiction movies, uh, it, it can lead to dark places. Um, Catherine, our third story uh, is about uh, cold brains and warm blood. Yeah, so well, the study is from Tokyo and they're kind of going backwards to go forwards to answer a question. Basically what it is, is they're looking at, did dinosaurs have a way of regulating their body temperature? And we know cold-blooded animals, so they're ectoderms, um, how they regulate is that they, if they're cold, they lie in the sun. If they're too warm, they go and have a dip or go into the shade. Uh, but endoderms like ourselves, we are warm-blooded animals and we have ways of regulating our body temperature. Like sweating. Like sweating, for instance. Yeah. Now, one part of our anatomy um, is uh, the nasal or the respiratory turbinates. And these are scroll-shaped uh, bone or cartilage pieces in our nasal cavity. And depending on the species, they have a slightly different kind of role. In humans, for instance, they warm the air and humidify it as it goes into our lungs. Hmm. Uh, but for other animals, it has extra kind of uses, for instance, regulating body temperature and also enhancing the smell senses. So, for instance, bears and uh, tigers would have quite large ones to help with their their, their sense of smell. Uh, in polar regions, which is interesting, if you look at polar species of, of seals, theirs are much larger than seals found in temperate and that's to keep them warmer because they're in colder conditions. So what the guys were trying to do was they looked at 51 different skulls and looked at the size of the nasal cavity, which would house these um, turbinates. And the reason why they're looking at this was a previous study had said that the nasal cavity is relative to the body size of the animal. There you are, good luck. Right. Uh, but what they, were, they went back and instead of that, they looked at the nasal cavity in regards to the head size. And it showed that uh, the warm-blooded animals had a much larger nasal ca- cavity in regards to the rest of the size of their head. So obviously this nasal, these scrolls are cooling down either our bodies or our brains or both. And, and again, it's not entirely sure which it is. And of course, again, it changes from species to species. So, so But, but the, uh, the size of someone's nose might be a good indicator as to whether or not they might be warm-blooded or cold-blooded? Yeah, the, the okay. size of the nasal cavity. Yeah. And um, so they looked at one particular dinosaur species, which was Velociraptor mongoniensis. And they, uh, looking at that, they were able to say, well, the nasal cavities are quite small compared to the rest of the skull. So obviously this, isn't a, this wasn't a use. But we've moved along on from the idea that dinosaurs were all cold-blooded big reptiles. Uh, we have the link with the avian. And birds are warm-blooded animals. Birds have these turbinates hmm. and they would use them uh, for body regu- temperature regulation. So it's kind of an interesting new route to have a look at these kind of avian uh, ancestors and looking at their skulls and seeing 
did they have some form of regulating their body temperature? Now, just because this one skull from Velociraptor told, tells us no, that doesn't mean they didn't. Maybe they had, their brains were too small and they didn't need to be cooled down as much mm. or maybe they had a different method and we had just, because we're working with fossils, we don't have evidence of it. Right, so lots of questions still remain. Lots of questions, <laughs> yeah. One question answered, lots more to come. Very interesting. Our final story um Fergus, I thought was uh, one that you'd particularly like. And this is uh, to do with climate change and baseball. Yeah, so you could almost call this story like Moneyball or Climate Ball. So if we think of that film Moneyball, whereby you'd Billy Bean, who was played by Brad Pitt, and what he was trying to do is he was trying to bring in players that would play roles to increase the success rate um, in baseball in terms of pitching and striking and everything like that. But... It turns out that in the meantime, the easiest way to get more home runs in a game of of baseball was to have climate change and global warming, essentially. So this is a it's it's a really nice study that was done out of Dartmouth College in the US. And their reasoning behind this is that as air gets warmer, it gets less dense. So yep. things, i.e. balls, can move through it easier. So what they did is they looked at hundreds of thousands of games over a number of decades and controlling for things like steroid use in baseball, the type of ball being used, the differences in the pitch. They reasoned that there was about a 1% increase in the total number um, of home runs that were hit as a result of global warming. That seems to me to be enormous considering we're talking about you know, a change that is supposedly quite slow. Oh, absolutely. And especially in terms of sport, because in sport you talk about marginal gains and like a 1% increase is enormous when it comes to top level professional sport. Now, that was just an observation Mm. over over hundreds of thousands of games. They needed to verify that. So what they did is they looked at much more recent games within, say, like a five year period. And they looked only at stadiums where high speed cameras had been installed. Right. And these cameras, as part of the television broadcasting, these were these were so good that they were able to analyse the like the launch angle as the ball hit the bat and the launch velocity. Right. And they were able to compare um hot days and cold days. No. To see for the same launch angle and for the same launch velocity, are you more likely on a warm day to get a home run than you are on a cold day? And it turns out that you are. No way. So they predict um, that by the end of the century, if things unfortunately keep going the way they are, that there will be a huge number of additional home runs in baseball, which personally I think is actually good news. Having been at a baseball match once, very little happens for a very very long period of time, which is why the food and everything is so important. So if if there is one little upside to global warming, is that there will be more home runs in baseball. Jesus, that is uh, clutching at straws. Uh, but <laughs> you know what? We'll take it today. Really uh, great work. Dr. Fergus McCullough from iCrag and Catherine McGuinness, science communicator. Thank you so much for joining us. Now, brain implants are tricky because they're hard and, in case you didn't know it, our brains are quite soft. But new injectable implants may be on the horizon that could yield amazing therapies for people suffering with Parkinson's or mobility because of paralysis and lots of other uh, issues. Joining me to discuss this is Hannah Bayman. She is a PhD student at the Laboratory of 
Organic Electronics at Linköping University, Sweden. Welcome uh, to the program, Hannah. Perhaps you might tell us a little bit about uh, these uh, brain implants or brain machine interfaces, uh, how long they've been around and what they're used for. They're around for quite a while. They are used for, uh, at the moment, uh, they're used for a ton of different things. You can find electrodes, for example, in pacemakers, in cochlear implants, for also for glucose sensing, if you have diabetes, for example, there are also this kind of uh, electrodes. We're focusing more on brain applications. So then you would look indeed more into deep brain stimulation, as it's called. And that is used for, indeed, like you mentioned before, the treatment of uh, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, but also epilepsy and uh, depression even sometimes. When we think about putting electrodes in the brain, that seems to me to be a very dangerous idea. And the brain being so complex, with neurons being so small, um, how do we figure out how and where to put these electrodes to get something useful out of that application? Oh, that is a study of decennia. And there's it is very tricky indeed, and there's a lot of very, very skilled surgeons that do this based on a lot of imaging techniques and more on like the materials that we use. Mm. But it's, yeah, it's a lot of trial and error over tons of years uh, and decennia. So the, the, um, the current technique for um, brain implants is often sort of uh, a set or sort of an array of little spikes that um, are inserted into the brain. And then there's there has to be a wire that comes from the implant through the skull, right? Uh, so you can communicate with that part of the brain or you, that you can um, turn a switch on or off as in the case of, of tremor reduction in Parkinson's. Is that how it works? There all are, uh, yeah, sometimes there are connections. Sometimes it's uh, wireless, depends a bit on which application you go for. So there is already some very interesting research going on there. Um, but yeah, still, you are true like you usually have like spikes or like the electrodes are still pretty bulky and certainly if you want them wireless you need more machinery that goes in there so that makes it also again more bulky Mm. Um, or you have indeed wires that go yes so um, it's not always ideal and i suppose that's why you're looking at this um because the the materials that we use in the body uh, need to be compatible with um with organic matter and uh, the brain is is quite a delicate tissue is it not yes yes it is it's a very yeah i mean it's a very soft tissue and also there's like you said before there's so much very um important there's not much room for error in the brain because every single spot in the brain has its own function so if something goes wrong somewhere yeah you have problems so yeah that's the biggest problem that you have with like these big electrodes it's a such a such a delicate task to implant them in the right place without uh, causing more damage. So, yeah, it's a very challenging part. And that's what we hope to address with our research. Yeah, I mean, what I hadn't realized is that once the implant is in, it can't stay there forever. I thought if you were a Parkinson's patient and you got the implant uh, into your brain, that would be it. But, but over time, these implants start to fail. Can you explain why? Yeah, so overall, like you mentioned before, these electrodes, they're very rigid and our brain is not. So there will be some friction coming that will also uh, introduce some inflammation. So you will uh, trigger your immune system and that immune system will look at the electrode as uh, a foreign body, as we call it. So they will start to encapsulate it so that it can't hurt us anymore. But of course, this encapsulation is also isolating us 
uh, from the brain, uh, which impairs the the function. So sometimes it has to be removed. Sometimes they just have to implant a new electrode or something. But yeah, these devices start to fail after a while. It's not something I considered that you know the scarring tissue would eventually dull down that that signal between um, the the neuron and uh, the device, and, and of course the the machine would eventually fail. Um, and that's the problem that you're sort of trying to tackle, looking at new materials that we can implant into the brain that we can use to to get that signal in and out of the brain. Can you tell me a little bit about your work? Yes. So what we uh, are trying to do is that we look at a we um, developed a new type of electrode, you could say it, and uh, it's. Um, a gel that we have so it's a little bit you can compare it a little bit to like a gelatinous uh, structure and the really cool thing is that we can inject it so it's if in the first stage we can literally inject it as water it's very liquid and the good thing about the part that's so liquid is that it will diffuse and it will take the form and the shape of the brain so in this case it's not the brain that has to adapt to the electrodes but the electrodes will adapt to the brain and then from the moment it's inserted in the brain, then if it encounters some metabolites that are always present, like for example, we chose to use glucose or lactate, which are sugars. Uh, from the moment that the gel encounters glucose or lactate, it will start to polymerize as we call it. And then it will really start to gelify and it will be stuck in place then and will be a conductive electrode. So it's literally actually formed inside the brain. So this is amazing that you, you inject what is a, a very runny liquid, essentially, and then once it um, comes in contact, uh, so to speak, with this glucose, it solidifies a little bit more, but it's still very it, flexible within the brain. It's so still it, very flexible to move along and stuff, to adapt to the environment, but it need, it's gelified enough so it will stay in place um, and be a conductive electrode, yeah. But um, do you need to pass a wire through it still or does this yeah, material also um also form the electrode itself in this moment indeed we still have um this is a very first very new thing and a new approach of thinking so we still have a lot of issues to tackle so indeed the, the wiring the connecting uh, is still something we're working on um we have dreams to make them wireless we have ideas on how to do that but that is still a very big challenge uh, that will take us a few more years to figure out. So in this moment, yes, we still need wires. Um, but it's the major thing about this is that it's just a completely new way of looking at materials and stepping away from this metal rigid electrodes and having something that you can just inject. Um, yeah, because uh, the, the alternative, as we, as we said, um, are these so-called Utah arrays, which is sort of like yeah. a, a microchip with lots of little spikes on it, and the spikes then get, get um, plugged into, into, ideally, one spike into each neuron, but it doesn't always work like that, is my understanding. No. Um, so the these, these um, soft electrodes that you're developing, is there a limit to where they can go in the brain? Um, do they have to be injected, presumably? Uh, is that something you can do through the skull, or do you still need to open up the skull to uh, to to get the electrode in to where it needs to be? Uh, you will still need... I mean, we have, of course... I mean, our research at the moment was still limited to zebrafish and uh, to uh, leeches. Uh, if you leeches? Translate... Yeah, leeches. We've worked with leeches. What? Um, Yes, 
Oh, what, why, do you, why do you work? Well, I mean, obviously they're soft, so it's easy and, and, and they don't complain when you open, open them up. But um, why leeches? Uh, I, I know zebrafish are very commonly used in scientific research. For, they're, they're basically where everything starts. But leeches is a new one on me. Yes. Uh, the, the zebrafish was indeed a really fun and good model for us to start because we could uh, have a very good, like we could visually see what was happening in some cases. Because we could, if we used a tail fin, for example, where we could see how it formed. So um, I think it's probably important could, to give people some context if they don't know about zebrafishes. Yeah. The reason why zebrafishes are great for research is you can see through them. You can make them yes. pretty much transparent. So you They're can you can have a look at your experiment happening while yes. um, while it's it's right there in front of you while the animal is alive. Yes, and in our case, um, our polymer from the moment that the monomer polymerizes to polymer, the color also switches from yellow to blue. So that was very interesting. So we could follow. Um, the process happening as it was going on. So that was where the zebrafish were great for us to start and to see which types of combinations work, which does not work as good. Wow. But, so it's, it's kind um, of like having a glass yeah. brain. Yes. Yeah, cool. It was, I mean, the brain is a little bit more tricky to actually see through, but certainly we worked in a tail fin and everything and we could just see everything that was going on. So that was really fun to see and gave us a lot of information. But an electrode is not... You, it's not very useful to have if it can't conduct any electricity or something. And that's why the leeches came in. What's very interesting about the leeches is that they have a very central nerve. And if you can stimulate that nerve, you will see immediately how the leech contracts. So you have direct visual uh, confirmation if your stimulation worked or not. Right. And that is why we used the leech, because it was a very clear a model for us to see if our uh, electrodes can work as electrodes or not. Because if they would not work as an electrode, they were kind of useless. Right. So th the first step was to see if the, the liquid would solidify or, or jellify a little bit. And the second then in the leashes was to see, um, would it be able would it be able to take an electric current, um, yes, which of course indeed. is really important. And can it work for what we wanted to do? Yes, indeed. That was um, the idea. So um, obviously... The, the the aim is to one be able, one day be able to do this in brains because um, to me I, I I hadn't really thought too much about it because I'd read about um, people who've had you know their um, their brains opened up uh, or their heads opened up a little bit to give an implant so they could use a robotic arm when they're when they're paralyzed and I thought that was such an amazing thing for that patient but I didn't realize that after a few years or, or even even sooner than that that ability for the patient is taken away and they're back to being paralyzed. And that, that to me seems like a very cruel thing to have to do with patients. So the, the aim of this, I suppose, is to allow, you know, permanent or at least more permanent um, implants in the brain to allow us to reduce tremors in Parkinson's or, or indeed uh, give people the ability to, to communicate if they're, if they're paralyzed. And um, what are the biggest challenges? If you find that this electrode works and that it is flexible, what is the biggest challenge to getting it to the next step, getting these inside human brains? Oh, that uh, there's a lot of things we still have to look into. Um, first of all, we need to uh, run longer tests because for now we were pretty limited in time because of ethical constraints and stuff. So we first of all need to run uh, experiments that take a few years to actually see how stable are they? Are they going to do what we think they're going to do? Because maybe there, I mean, we have some good um, indicators that it's a very safe material, but yeah, we still have to double check that. 
Um, so when you say very safe, you mean when you open up the, the fish, you didn't see scarring of tissue like you yeah, might see with so electrodes? There was no scarring. There was no behavioral uh, changes. We tested it on cell lines. So mm. we also put some normal cells on there because there were no constraints. They were fine. So it looks in short amount of time, as in like uh, up to three days we could test. That was where we were limited to. And then it looks perfectly fine. So short term is fine. But yeah, of course, we want to know, is it long term also still as fine? Um, are they going to be stable enough over time? Do we get them wireless? Is indeed also one of the main things we'll have to figure out. Um, yeah. And how to get them also as specific as possible. Yeah, to, to, to get make sure they get into the exact neuron that you want them to get into. Yeah. Um, and that's yeah, also what we're working on now, because we used in this type of, um, in this uh, paper that we now published, we used glucose and lactate, which are sugars. But because it's a very, very easy system to adjust, we can also work on, way, on more specific, for example, um, disease markers or anything, so that we could really target, for example, diseased uh, places in the brain. Wow. That's okay. So, so, so what you're saying was, is, if, if a if a part of the brain had a particular type of disease, you would look for uh, um, some sort of um, biomarker, some signal coming from that region of the brain, and you could use that to turn the liquid to to the gel, and and then you'd know it would be in, in exactly the right place. Yes. Oh, That's, very cool. Um, the idea at the moment, at least. So in theory, that should work. Yes, but it's these things are very complicated and will take a lot of time. But that's the aim where we're going for, yes. So is the idea then that you would be able to inject this um, or, or would you still need to drill a hole? Uh, we hope to go for like injection to keep it as small as possible. If, um, I mean, the ideal, ideal thing, which is almost science fiction and I'm not sure if we would get it, is uh, that we would just inject it in the bloodstream, that it would transfer the brain barrier and go by itself there. That is something that's 50 <laughs> years from now. Right. That's the extreme ideal, but I think if we can just inject it, um, that would already be um, at least on open skull surgery. So it will be an improvement. Uh, and um, and then being able to communicate through the skull, um, you talked about wireless um, uh, uh, communication, so you don't have to have uh, you know, an open wound or an open... Um, connection through the skull, which is obviously open to infection and so on. That that is that it has problems because of you need the wireless chip and it won't last for a long time and and signals aren't as clear. Is that the is that the the reason why we mostly have brain implants that are through the skull? Um, yeah, it's always tricky indeed to like keep stuff inside the body active is always tricky mm. uh, because of the immune system that's working because of also. It's pretty dense matter, so to get stuff there and in and out, it's a really, really, yeah, tricky thing, tricky business. Mm. Um, there are a lot of different problems that could go wrong with it. So yeah, I guess that's why. I guess that's why they say brain surgery is, well, <laughs> it's, it's rocket science essentially. It's brain surgery, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Gosh, it's really, really interesting stuff. So uh, great to speak with you. Hannah Beeman is a student at the Laboratory of Organic Electronics at Linköping University in Sweden. Thanks very much for your time, Hannah. Thank you very much. I don't know if you've ever spent any time looking at YouTube videos of um, people who have had brain implants 
using their new robotic arm or or whatever it is they're they're using. Uh, but I highly recommend you do because they look of astonishment and just joy on their face as they think, you know, extend arm, lift coffee cup, take sip of coffee. And, and as that those thoughts are then transferred to a robotic arm that then does that, like for someone who's paralyzed, that must be such an extraordinary but also weird ass feeling. Uh, the videos are very satisfying to watch. And of course, there's been lots of different um, applications of this. But the idea that you could think something and then a robot would then do what you think um, is, as as you know, is no longer the realm of, of science fiction. Very cool stuff. Um, all right. It's time to look back at your comments from last week. So we were talking about um, uh, climate change. And as often uh, we do when we talk about climate change, uh, we get people from uh, from Twitter, who says, uh, you know, some good data here that highlights we're not in a climate emergency and actually everything's fine. And I, you know, I mean, I just, you know, clinging on to those ideas despite everything that we see and despite everything that the world is doing to try and stop climate change, I I admire the tenacity of, of climate deniers more than anything else. It, it You know, if you're hanging on to the idea that climate change isn't human um, uh, made and it and isn't a problem then that's that's an amazing cognitive dis- distance you're um displaying so well done to you we were talking about smell and how we sense smell and i i really enjoyed uh, our chat um with our guest last week if you, if you missed it you can uh, find it wherever you found this podcast consciousness coach Sinead on twitter says so great to hear smell being discussed on the radio thanks for sharing this i'm not sure why Sinead is so into the sense of smell she didn't didn't, didn't sort of quote validate that but she is a consciousness coach so maybe it's something to do with being present in the moment and and taking aware of all uh, 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 taking you know, sort of note of all the senses that your your brain is giving you um, we got a longer email um, from a guy called Greg. He's in Woi Woi in New South Wales in Australia. Hello, Greg. And we don't get too many emails from um, New South Wales, so um, lovely to hear from you. He says, I hope uh, you talk again to Dr. Ashish Mangli because I'd very much like to know this. How and or why do wine tasters sense in wine things that are not present in them? For example, hay, leather, cherries, citrus, etc.? After hearing wine tasters claim this sort of stuff and seeing it on wine bottles, my first reaction is, this is just ridiculous pretend mumbo-jumbo, and then they're all just making it up for their own silly reasons. Like the nonsense that clairvoyance and mediums go on with. Maybe they're just sharp psychological practitioners like magicians. Perhaps art appreciation artists sometimes sink this into this low as well. But then in my puzzlement, I decided as a tool of thought to assume they're telling the truth so that I could proceed to work out what might be happening if wine tasters are genuine. One fact that encouraged this is it's a wine tasting industry-wide phenomenon, not just one lone idiot. Um, nevertheless, it was just a shot in the dark and maybe a distracting waste, a waste of time. Then the light bulb flashed in my mind's eye the complex chemicals in the wines or spirits that are being tasted may stimulate the same combinations of smell neurons as the substances that the tasters perceive. In other words, as you are smelling something, you are getting the same stimulated parts of your brain and that's why you think it smells like leather or that's why you think it smells like um, cherries. Um, Has Dr. Manglick given any thought to this phenomenon if so, has he worked out what really happened? And does he have a better working hypothesis to this? Could it be a research agenda for him? Let's <laughs> say, Greg, Greg, you're extending a little bit. I mean, um, although you, you never know. We will definitely say this to um, to Dr. Manglick, but 
I, I, I've actually only just come back from France uh, where in this fancy wine shop they had a whole case of little vials of the scents from 1 to 88, I think it was. And so there's t- 44, beautiful little thing, 44 little vials of liquid that you could smell that were the individual sort of building blocks for the scent of different wines. And so it started off with lemon and then it was orange and then it was... Uh, you know, chopped uh, or uh, cut hay, and then there was leather, as you say, and, and all these other things. And you could smell each one. And once you were told what it was, you could say, oh, yeah, it does smell a bit like that. But identifying them, certainly for me, um, was not always very easy. But once you were told that's what it is, you're like, oh, yeah. And so they take this very seriously uh, in France. And and yet, a guy called Frederick Brochet, um, a number of decades ago, I think about 15, 20 years ago, did this really interesting experiment in which he got sommeliers um, from across France together and he gave them a white wine that had been dyed red. And then he got them to judge, based on the smell alone, what flavours they smelt. And in a rather upsetting um, development, it turns out that um, the sommeliers would describe the flavours that they smelt as being red wine flavours. <laughs> so they were smelling what was a white wine dyed red and they were saying, oh yes, this is very jammy and red currant and I'm getting notes of uh, of these dark fruits when, of course, white wines should not be giving those. They should be giving citrusy and herbs and so on. And so I think there was a bit of the mask slipping in this particular um, scientific experiment uh, but once you get into taste, I think when it comes to taste, uh, these th- these sommeliers really can determine what is going on in the flavor um, uh, profile of something. But the scent alone is very much open to perception. So if you're interested, have a look at Frederick Brochet's work. I think he's at University of Bordeaux, if memory serves me. And it's, it's a really interesting look at, uh, you know, are, are we cutting ourselves a little bit when it comes to the, the scent that, and the aromas that we sense in wine or is it just a bit of theatre? So there you go, Greg. Um, I'd love to know what you make of that. And if you were interested in, in this research, maybe you might um, see what you make of Brochet's work and come back to us. And I'll send your email on to uh, Dr. Manglick and, and we'll see what he says. That's it from us on this week's Future Proof. Thank you so much to our production team who are Marisa Sullivan, Simon Keane, Steve Daunt and Hugo De Silva on sound. We'll be back with more Future Proof in your podcast feed on Tuesday. In the meantime, stay curious. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.